What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the show. Today is going to be a Q&A episode, so thank you to everybody who asked a question. Normally, I browse these beforehand, maybe even make a couple of notes, but that just didn't happen today, so bear with me at first glance here. If I skip your question, I'm sorry. I'm going to stick to the ones that are probably most applicable for most people, uh, and we're going to be jumping around across a wide range of topics today just after kind of browsing through here, so pretty cool. First question is from Cryan6925, and he asks, what types of stretches or warm-ups are you doing before an upper or lower body day? Now, I'll cut to the chase. For hypertrophy, I do not think you need lengthy dynamic warm-ups. I don't think you need anything crazy out of the box, fancy dynamic stretches. It doesn't need to be, um, you know, ton of T-spine hip opening drills. Like, man, the best warm-up you can do for hypertrophy for a session when you're walking in, let's say you have squats, the best warm-up for squats is going to be lighter squats. And so let's say you do have squats. What I'd rather see you do is something like a pyramid-style warm-up where you go over and let's say you do 15 air squats, just body weight. And as you add load towards the set, the working weight that you will use for those sets, you drop the reps. And the point of increasing the load incrementally is to potentiate the nervous system, to get your nervous system firing. Uh, You don't want to go in and do a set of air squats and then put your working weight on. Incrementally increasing load as you get closer to that working weight will, will improve performance via this potentiation of your nervous system. Your nervous system will get ready, be more prepared to lift that heavy weight. It's like It's like taking a couple of practice swings with your golf club. Um, You're getting the motor pattern kind of re-ingrained. You're practicing, taking a couple swings, and then you get up, and you'll be better off, a better chance of having better performance. And so what that would look like, let's say, really quickly, let's say you're warming up for squats, and let's say your working weight is 185. What you might do is you might do a set of 15 bodyweight squats, then rest 30 to 60 seconds, and then grab the bar and maybe, you know, and you could potentially skip the air squats and just go to just the bar, whatever. Um, let's say you grab the bar, you do 10, maybe you put 25 on each side, which is 95 pounds. Maybe you do eight. Then you put a plate on, which is 135. Maybe you do six. And then maybe you put 185 on and you do, which is your working weight, by the way. And maybe you do a single or a double to really feel the weight and to really have your nervous system get ready for the load it's about to have to do. And so what I would recommend is instead of spending all this time on big fancy dynamic warmups, walk over to your first exercise and do a period uh, pyramid style warmup where you start light with more reps and you get closer to your working weight, you decrease the reps, uh, and then maybe even a single or double with your working weight. You will find that you have better performance. Um, the best warmup you can do is lighter versions of the exercises you're currently doing. Next question is from Sarah Neitz, and she asks, do I need to reverse diet down after a surplus? How do I know when I've reached maintenance? Um, What I will say is, the answer is no, because what I can tell that you're implying is that do you need to do a slow, gradual reverse diet after a surplus back to your maintenance calories? You don't. You never need to do a slow reverse diet. Uh, I'm going to put in the link in the description to my reverse dieting podcast so you kind of have a better grasp on this, but in the context of a surplus, the surplus is going to be very small. The difference between this question, if you asked in terms of a deficit, is deficits can be quite large. You know, the smallest deficit would be 300 probably for the average person, all the way up to a lot. You know, you could have a thousand calorie deficit. With a surplus, though, we're kind of in this, you know, of the understanding that a very small surplus is, is what's needed to maximize muscle growth. You don't need a big, I mean, we're not talking about a thousand calorie surplus. A 300 calorie surplus would be enough to maximize muscle growth. It's a very slow process. And so because these the differences, the, the magnitude of caloric change is very small, chances are if you're doing it right, if you've chosen a very small surplus, that at some point you will you will plateau via this you know metabolic adaptation which we've talked about. You'll gain enough weight, well eventually that surplus will disappear and it will become maintenance. 
And only if you're very, very high over your maintenance, 700, 800, 900, 1,000 calories, will you have to actively, most likely, actively bring those calories down. Now, it's very possible that you stop your gaining phase whilst still in a surplus. And you're saying, okay, I don't want to be in a surplus anymore. I'm currently in a surplus. That means I have to actively decrease calories. You definitely do. Um, but it might only be 200, 300, 100 before you're back at maintenance. Again, if you're doing it right. Uh, and then kind of just to remind you, you don't need to do that slowly. You can just jump down there. Uh, how do you know if you've reached maintenance? It's going to, The larger the sample size of consistency, the more sure you can be, right? So if it's been three days and your weight hasn't changed, are you at maintenance? I don't know, probably, maybe, who knows, maybe not. Maybe you've just had three days at maintenance, um, you know, water fluctuations and all that. So what I would say is at least 14 days of consistency to declare any like make any deduction of your calories, but I'd say upwards of 30 days of consistency before saying, oh, I am or I'm not at maintenance. Sometimes you increase calories or decrease them. In the short term, you see weight change, but in the long term, things level out. People freak out in the first two to three days of changing their calories, whether it's up or down. You know, let's say you're reverse dieting and you increase your calories 200 out of your deficit and you're like, oh my God, I gained a pound, but two weeks from then it levels out. And so give everything some time. I'd say 30 days of consistency with no weight change on average. You can be Pretty sure uh, you're at maintenance. Next question is from Drake Butler, and he asks, for the hammer strength row, for the iliac lats, which are the lowermost portion of your lats, it feels easier as I get closer to my body. Is that fine? First off, this probably isn't an iliac exercise. It's probably more of like the lumbar lats, but it's not really, whatever. Not, I'm being a bit pedantic there, but um, eh, eh, sure. Is the hammer strength row, as you are pulling that that handle back, which by the way, I have a post on this, guys. I'll link it in the description for the hammer strength row. It's a step back row. Um, as you get closer to your body, as the muscle gets shorter, as you enter that short position of the lat, it feels easier. Is that fine? Drake, let me tell you, not only is that fine, that is the point of doing the hammer strength row. Um, most pull exercises that you do will have a constant tension. There will be no uh, resistance uh, profile of the exercise. It's just on a track or it's a dumbbell and you're, dumbbell and you're fighting gravity. Um, and so there's no ascending or descending nature of the resistance curve of the exercise itself. And so what you usually are end, end up with is all of your pulling exercises are always hardest in the short position because that is where you are weaker. And so you end up having a lot of similar resistance profile movements because at the end of the day, if you're doing a dumbbell row or a chin up or a lat pull down, or a chest assisted dumbbell row, all of those exercises don't have a differing resistance curve throughout the movement, and so they are going to be hardest where you are weakest, which is the short position. And it's it's not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that, it's just very similar all the time. And so what the hammer strength row allows you to do is it allows you to have a resistance curve that gets easier where you get weaker. And so as your arm gets closer to your body and you're finishing that movement, I know you guys can't picture it, I'm doing the motion with my hands, um, the exercise actually gets easier and allows you to really challenge the lengthen position because you're not fatiguing so quickly in the short position. So that is actually exactly why you would be doing this exercise. So not only is that fine, it is wonderful. Uh, anything else on that? No, that sounds about right. All right. Cameo Abigail Fit asks, is hypertrophy the best way to build muscle? What is the gold standard? I'm a newbie, comma, thanks. I guess we're saying punctuation out loud now. Okay, um, all right. Is hypertrophy the best way to build muscle? Yes, I mean, hypertrophy really just means growth. Uh, and so when we're talking about hypertrophy style training, we're talking about training with the goal of building muscle. And so that is the best way to do that. Uh, strength training would be the, the kind of training that you would wanna do to build strength. Endurance training would be the kind of training you wanna do to, to build endurance. And so for hypertrophy style training, that is the kind of training you wanna do to build muscle. 
Now, because you're a newbie, I'm going to stay out of the weeds here. I'm going to give you some more practical takeaways. Here's what you need to do, Cameo, Abigail, Fit. You need to do exercises with an, with enough load that means that you're going to fail somewhere between 5 and 30 reps. And that's a pretty wide range, which means you have some leeway here. Um, and so you want to take the target muscle close to failure. Let's say a bicep curl. You want your biceps to fail. You want your biceps to say, hey, I can't do any more reps somewhere between 5 and 30. Sometimes in that 5 to 10, sometimes in that 10 to 20. You know, I would say 20 to 30 be the least applicable, but technically that is definitely possible, certainly for you as a newbie. So the gold standard is hypertrophy training. And if we break down what hypertrophy training is, it's bringing target muscles close to failure within the 5 to 30 rep range and then accumulating enough of that volume over time. Something like if you had to, I mean, again, this is not something that I just don't believe most average people listening to this should be building their own programs. There's so many easy options out there for professionally designed programs, but something like at least six sets per muscle group per week, um, depending on how you're counting those, by the way, which is something we've covered in other podcasts, but yeah. So hopefully that helps. You want to do, uh, you want to bring the target muscle close to failure within five to 30 reps, and then you want to do enough of those sets at, let's say at least six per muscle group to grow. Cool. That said, as a newbie, you can probably get away with a lot less. Next question is from Marianne Russell, and she says, why do some people separate glutes and hams and quads versus doing it all together on a, quote, leg day? That's a good question. So the truth is that, man, if you put a put a gun to my head and ask me, hey, person A does the same amount of volume but splits it up into a glute ham day and a quad day. And then obviously a clone person does it all together. Maybe like a little bit of glutes, a little bit of quads, a little bit of hams all on the same day, but the volume is equated and everything else, of course, proximity to failure technique, all of that nutrition, all of that stuff in this hypothetical is equated. Do I really think there's going to be a big difference in, in the results between these two people? I don't, I think it, I would be hard pressed to, to say there'd be any difference that would be visible, you know, it would be noticeable enough that you could see it. Um, Personally, there's some there is some mechanistic stuff here. There is a, a bit of a different stimulus that can happen if you work, let's say quads, 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 quads all on one day versus if you do quads on Monday a little bit, quads on Wednesday a little bit, quads on Friday a little bit. There is going to be a slightly different stimulus. We don't need to get too deep into the weeds, but for some circumstances, you're going to want to work deeper into fatigue during one session for a certain muscle group versus splitting it up and not working as deep into fatigue during that session, even if it's equated across the week. That said. Here's what I've been coaching people for obviously a long time. And I've had this, you know, I've had the opportunity to organize it in both of these ways. What I will say is a practical benefit of organizing it in this way, like you're describing where you have a gluten ham day on one day and a quad day on another day is some cues and just like uh, something from like a mental focus standpoint um, are very similar if you get into the groove. So let's look at quads. Let's say you're doing a, a day that is leg extensions into hack squats, into uh, heel elevated split squat. Maybe that's your quad day. Well, a lot of those exercises involve the cue of drive the knees forward, drive the knees forward, right? Especially the hack squat and the split squat. Um, And you might get a better stimulus on those two exercises because you did the leg extension first, which might have given you an opportunity to get a really good mind-muscle connection with with your quads in the short position. And then you go to the hack squat in a fatigued state with the quads and you have a better chance of making the quads the limiting factor there because some people's glutes take over. And so, you know, when you get into this like quad only day, you get a lot of exercises that might have similar cues. And when you can get into that headspace of like, hey, drive the knees forward, drive the knees forward, knees over toe, knees over toe, you know, keep the heel down, knees over toe. That can kind of pay dividends in terms of getting in the groove with that on a certain day. Like if you're doing, let's say, um, let's say you do, 
a hack squat and then an RDL and then a Bulgarian and then a leg extension. It's like all four of those exercises have like slightly different cues that you need. It's like, okay, the RDL, I'm sitting the hips back, sitting a little bit, uh, uh, pushing my hips to the wall behind me, soft knee bend, trying to get a lot of hip extension. Then you go over to the hack squat and you're like, okay, drive the knees forward, get the knees over the toe, you know, not too, not too wide, whatever. They are just different. And so I've found that if you can get in the groove, like if you have a hamstring glute day, that's like hip extension, glute bridge, RDL, you know, Bulgarian split squat or something. A lot of those cues, again, they're not all the same. The Bulgarian and the hip extension have very different cues, of course, but there is some hip extension component. Uh, there's some torso leaning and some of that stuff you can get into the groove on. And so you might find, by the way, you should experiment. You might find that you enjoy, personally I do, quads, 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 quads on one day. And I'm here to just say that meh, how you split it up is is not negligible, but matters a whole lot less when we compare or we factor in all the other training variables of like how many sets, proximity to failure, exercise selection, all that stuff. Um, and so you can feel free to to try and and do both of these and see which one you like more. I do like putting the glutes and hams on one day, quads on another day, just because you can probably get into the groove and reinforce some of those technique cues a little bit better. And there's some potentially mechanistic benefit, potentially, but I don't think it's meaningful enough that if you, you know, decided you didn't want to do that, you wouldn't be able to make amazing gains. Of course you would. Awesome. Next question is from Sam Viveros asks, is it possible to be in a surplus, lift weights, and still not put on muscle? The only way this is possible, Sam, is if when you mean, when you say lifting weights, you are not getting close to failure on any of your sets or on so few of them that it doesn't make a difference. So let's say you were doing one working set uh, to failure, let's say, um, one working set to failure per muscle group per week, and you were in a surplus, you know, the technical answer is you would probably put on some muscle, but it would be negligible enough that we could say you're not putting on any muscle. So that would be the scenario where you're just not doing enough volume or you're doing enough volume where you're in there and, uh, you know, you send me your workout. You're like, hey, I'm not growing muscle with this, these like three sets of this and three sets of that and three sets of this. And that to me would indicate, okay, you're in the gym, you're doing, you're, you're going through the motions, but you're not getting close enough to failure to really push that adaptation. So the only two scenarios where this is possible is if you're not getting close enough to failure, maybe you're doing enough sets, but they're not actually stimulative, or you are doing stimulative sets, but you're just doing a whole lot less. Now, I would say that uh, it's almost never the case that you're that you're bitching out so much on your sets going so far away from failure that you're not gaining any, like it's rare that you would be so far from failure all the time that in calorie surplus, you wouldn't build muscle. So it's unlikely to be the case, but yeah. All right, next question is from Sarah Loads, and she asks, how often do maintenance calories change on a day-to-day or weekly basis? Um, on a day, so the, the if we look at your maintenance calories, what that means is your TDEE. So how, how much does TDEE change on a day-to-day? Well, let's look at what TDEE is. Your TDEE, total daily energy expenditure, or how many calories you burn, or how many calories you can eat and maintain your calories, or, or maintain your weight, or maintenance calories, all synonyms here. How much does that change day-to-day? Okay, well, what is TDE made up of? It's made up of your BMR, which is just how many calories your body requires to keep the lights on, organ function, all that stuff. Then we have a uh, thermic effect of food, which is the calories burned off in the digestion of the food that you're eating. And then we have all your movement. Some of it subconscious, which is neat, and some of it conscious, which is eat, exercise, activity, thermogenesis. So how often does that stuff change day-to-day? Well, uh, man, BMR isn't changing day-to-day, that's for sure. And your thermic effect of feeding probably isn't changing much day-to-day. Even if you're, what you're eating day-to-day changes a ton, thermic effect of feeding in and of itself is a very small variable. So even if you changed a ton from what you were eating, you would have to go from eating zero protein to 
five times body weight protein for this to really matter. Um, and so that's probably not really changing at all. And then we have your activity. And so the answer to your question is how much does maintenance calories change on the day to day? Well, it changes pretty much in tandem with how much your, um, movement changes, your caloric expenditure, your activity level. So that might be a lot. You might have work days where you're working 12 hours and you might have other days where you're crushing it, get 15,000 steps. There's your answer. It's changing by that much. Now on a weekly basis, if I ask you, I say, Hey, uh, how many days a week did you work out this week? How many days were you active? And you're like four. And I say, okay, how often are you, uh, uh, on a weekly basis, is that about the average? Yes, that's about the average. Okay, well, it turns out maintenance calories, TDE, does not change much on a weekly basis unless you went away for a week on a hiking trip and you got 30K steps every day. Okay, well, that's a not that's not what we're talking about here. On a weekly basis, maintenance calories, over by and large, do not change. Day-to-day, they change, but that's why we're not worried about it day-to-day. We're looking at it weekly and monthly, and the more you zoom out, the more these day-to-day fluctuations don't matter. Cool. Sorry, just finishing that last sip of coffee. Here we go. Next question is from Jenna B 397 She asks, how to modify a superset if you can't secure both machines on opposite sides of the gym? Yeah, you know, honestly, I have obviously been programming for clients for a long time, and this is something that... You know, I talk about with my coach, we laugh all the time about like to bring together, like to create a superset that uh, like looks really good on paper from a mechanistic standpoint, like from an organization for hypertrophy standpoint, whether that's a pre-exhaust, whether it's an antagonist superset, post-exhaust is cool and all. But what if those two machines are so far away? Like we have to think about logistics. You know, for people who are working out in their home gym, that's cool. We don't care about you. <laughs> your logistics are your own and you got this. But if you're in a commercial gym, and honestly, this has happened to me a few times where it's like, hey, I'm doing a hamstring curl supersetted with a lat pull down, and they're two hot commodities, and they're also on opposite sides of the gym. And so what I would say is I would modify a superset to see if you can get one of those exercises to be a dumbbell uh, a dumbbell exercise. That's something that I've found can work decently well, uh, which isn't always possible, but if you that means it's very easy. You can just bring dumbbells over to that machine, and now you no longer need to use two machines. Um Outside of that, honestly, you have to ask yourself, do I want to be that person in the gym trying to hold down two machines that are across? You probably don't want to be that person. Chances are you can come up with a similar uh, stimulus with a less of a logistical nightmare if you organize it in a different way. One of those ways might be trying to get one of those exercises to be a dumbbell exercise um, or something where you're bringing a bench over to cables. You know, you're using cables together. Um, At the end of the day, there are, you know, if if you're in a program that, says you need to do these two things, speak up about it because it's very likely that there's an easy fix for you. Alrighty, uh, the official Mrs. Mellon RN. I think that is correct, I'm not sure. Going to failure. What if that happens at less than the reps prescribed in the program? Should I drop the weight? So let's say you're programmed for a lateral raise set of 10 to failure and you grab the the, the 10 pounders and you get eight and you're at failure. So the program said you wanna go to failure but it also prescribed 10 reps. You went to failure, but it happened at eight. Should you drop the reps and try and get 10? Now, if you, the answer is yes, you should. You should try and do exactly what the program prescribes. So if it says 10 reps to failure, do your best to pick a weight that gets you to 10 reps to failure. Now, where this, a uh, couple things I would say on this is like, I would say that the going to failure part is the more important part in this discussion. So if you told me, hey, and this is a real life example. I chose the lateral raise in this hypothetical for a reason. Let's say you're using the 10 pound lateral raises and you get, for, for lateral raises, and you get eight and you're at failure. And I said, well, you gotta go to 10 and you go from the 10 pounders to the five pounders. 
Well, obviously now you're going to get 25 reps before you get to failure. And so sometimes you don't have the option to, to make this very incremental load drop to kind of fit into the perfect rep spot. And so what I will say is that the proximity to failure that is prescribed for you, the RIR, whether it's two reps shy of failure or one or all the way to failure, that's the more important variable. Now the rep is there for a reason. And I, I explain this in my group programming. It's like, hey guys, like I gave you this rep range for a reason. But if you get to seven and I said to do eight, but you got to failure and I said, go to failure, just stop. That's fine. I care more that you got the correct RIR than I care whether it was seven or eight reps or eight or nine reps. I'm not saying that that stuff doesn't matter. I'm just saying I care more about you getting that RIR on point. And so what I will say is if you can make an incremental load drop, let's say you're not doing lateral raises, let's say you're doing lat pull downs where you have five pound increments that you can increase and you could have, let's say, dropped the weight by 10 pounds and it would have been perfect. I want you to do that. But I also want you to know in circumstances where you can't do that, it's perfectly fine and I'd rather you um, go after the RIR than obsess over the exact rep number. Next question, Javin's Girl says, tracking calories makes me anxious and obsessive. Are there other ways to monitor nutrition? There absolutely are. I'm gonna save this answer. I'm gonna link in the description. There's a podcast. It's called Just Track Something. It doesn't need to be calories. It absolutely doesn't. There are other parts of your nutrition and your health and your exercise and your routine that you can monitor that are gonna have nutrition or, or let's say health benefits. Now, depending on you know which benefits you're after and in what magnitude, like how ambitious your goals are, let's say you need to be stage lean. If you mean monitor nutrition, meaning get on stage, which I'm sure you don't mean that, um, but let's say that's what you meant, okay, you're gonna have to track calories. If you mean monitor nutrition in terms of you know, fuel for workouts and make sure I have enough protein for muscle growth, you can absolutely do that without tracking calories. So it's going to depend on what you mean by monitoring nutrition. It's also going to depend on how ambitious that goal is. You're like, hey, tracking uh, tracking calories makes me obsessive. Are there other ways to monitor nutrition for, for getting stronger? There are. If you wanted to be the strongest person on earth and that was your pursuit, okay, well, then that's a very different story. You're probably going to need to track. Um, and so I'll link that below. There's a lot of options there that don't involve tracking calories, or at least there are other options that other versions of tracking stuff that are probably less likely to be led to this like obsessive route. All right, what do we have? 22 minutes? Okie doke. Let's see if I can get through these last few in about 10 minutes here. Karen Nicole asks, you catch somebody, do, I liked this question by the way, uh, you know, let's say you catch somebody Googling quote, does Octavia work as a coach? Octavia is like some bullshit, super low-cal starvation fad diet crap. Um, the question is, do you interject? So you catch somebody Googling does Octavia work? You yourself are a coach. Do you interject? I, I wish I would have thought about this. Like you're getting going to get a really raw answer. It's interesting because I, I I have a similar analogy of like I've been to the gym lately and seen people doing dumb stuff. And I posted some of it one day. Some people were doing some stuff where they were definitely going to snap an ankle or something. Uh, and so, you know, most people understand that like I'm just trying to help. I'm not trying to make fun of anybody. Like obviously I didn't go up to this person and try and correct them. Um, but I'm not there to make fun of anybody. Just want you guys as viewers, people consume my content to understand what not to do. And so you have this mentality of like, do I help this person or or is this, am I overstepping? Um, it's interesting. I, I, I probably would interject, frankly. Um, but I, I would be cautious with how, uh, you know, how much advice I'm giving and more, my, my job as a coach in general is not to is tell is you know uh, I'm gonna steal this from my man Jordan Syed, which I, he he says he's heard it from somebody else but it's like um, I'm not gonna tell you what to see I'm I'm gonna show you where to look and so 
I might just ask this person some questions, see if they can come up with their own understanding that maybe this isn't the route they want to go. Uh, you know, like, hey, like, have you, you know, have you looked into how low calories that is? Do you think that that might be sustainable for you? Uh, it seems like maybe it's something that um, is just, you know, clickbait and, you know, something that's really targeted at, you know, yo-yo dieters, let's say, or something. Maybe I wouldn't say that whole thing, but I would want to get that person thinking. The, the, it would be tough for me. I would be tough. It'd be tough for me to walk away entirely just because I do think that, like, if I could just leave this person at least questioning what they are looking up in terms of the sustainability of it, I think that that would be a good thing. But obviously there are boundaries and you're not going to be like just, you know, shitting all over this thing in front of somebody. I don't think that that, like the goal is to be helpful, right? I mean, the whole point of interjecting is to hopefully help this person. And I think in that moment, if it's somebody you don't know or don't know that well and can't be super open and honest, I think just getting that person to think might be um, the best you can do in that situation. I'd be interested if you guys agree or disagree. So if you hear this and you want to DM and talk about it, I'd be interested. Cool. Next question is from Joe George. He asks, can you use the addition of a rest pause method like a myo set, for example, or a drop set as a form of progression? You absolutely can. One of the forms of progression is an increase in volume. That is a form of progressive overload. The addition of a set. Now, is that a, a standard set? Is it a drop set? Is it a myo set? Those are all potential fine things to do if pushing volume um, is the the lever that you happen to be pushing at this week in the in the progression scheme let's say um, this is absolutely I think it's our second my uh, our second mesocycle in the group programming is going to have myo sets and drop sets and if you don't know what those are I promise I explain them in detail it's not complicated um, but it's a, a form of a of adding volume that isn't adding a straight set you're adding you know in, a, in the terms of a myo set, you're adding another couple of reps after a very short rest. That's why it's called rest pause. Or a drop set where you're adding an additional set with a lower uh, lower weight immediately after performing your first set. So I think they are definitely forms of progression. They are not the same as adding a straight set after two to three minutes of rest like you were doing, let's say, your previous sets. They are different. Um, but at the end of the day, they do fall under the umbrella of adding volume, which is absolutely one form of progressive overload, let's say. Okay, Monica Meta asks, are bands as effective as free weights for those of us who are at home? No, they are not. That does not mean that they are not effective. Um, they are. Bands have, let's just focus on one unique or specific downside. Bands usually have one same resistance curve. It is always an ascending resistance curve, which means let's say you're doing a uh, banded tricep pushdown. Well, that exercise is only going to be hard at the bottom when that band is really stretched. And so that makes it a very shortened bias exercise where your ex it makes the exercise hardest where your muscle is shortest. And basically that happens all the time with every exercise because the it's only going to be difficult when the band, let's say you're doing a band face pull or a band row. Well, the beginning part of the movement when you're rowing towards your body, when your arm is more stretched out, it's gonna be very easy because the band is not very stretched. As you bring that band closer to your body and your muscle gets shorter, it's going to be hard, much harder. And so it's really only hard in one place and it's only hard in the short position. And from what we know about what causes the most hypertrophy, chances are head to head, we're, we're looking at more lengthened biased exercises uh, as exercises that cause more hypertrophy. And so you end up having a lot of shortened position exercises, which isn't the end of the world. Now, what I'll say is bands can absolutely be part of a really awesome at-home training plan. They can be part of a gym, a gym plan. Um, we just need to accept that they aren't the perfect tool in all circumstances and use them when they are effective. We will be using them a ton in our at-home programming. We'll be using them a, a bit in our gym programming, 
but we are going to know what their downsides are and we're going to fill those gaps with exercises that kind of round that out. And so let's say you're doing a tricep pushdown with a band as one of your tricep exercises. Well, we might do something with a more lengthened bias. Maybe it's an overhead uh, an overhead dumbbell extension or a decline skull crusher or something like that um, where we're making sure we're also hitting that lengthened position. Cool. Cam Marrow asks, visceral fat versus subcutaneous fat. I recently saw that you lose each differently. Is this true? What I will do for... We could back up a step. Visceral fat, this is going to be a very general description. Visceral fat is usually the fat around your organs, and uh, visceral fat tends to be the more more dangerous of the two. And we talk about having excess adipose tissue, excess body fat. It's really that visceral fat that tends to be more tightly correlated with like negative health outcomes. It's the fat like right around your organs in the middle of your body and your core. Uh, and I don't mean like the fact that you can kind of, I don't mean like if you grab the, you, you take your finger and your thumb and you pinch your stomach and you feel, I don't mean that fat. I mean, visceral fat via, um, when we compare it to subcutaneous fat, which is fat below the skin, which is more stuff that you can be touching and feeling. Um, now what I'll tell you is that, you know, I'm not really sure what you mean by you, you lose them differently. If what you're saying is that there are different things you can do to target visceral fat or subcutaneous fat, I don't believe that to be true. And what I would say is whether you, I mean, I guess if you could to a meaningful degree, then this would be a question worth answering. Like th that would be a pursuit and that would be a pursuit worth pursuing. Um, but I don't believe you can target them in any meaningful way. While you would like to lose visceral fat more, I don't believe that there's a diet strategy or an exercise strategy that's gonna uh, in any meaningful way target one over the other. What I would say is if you have body fat to lose, like the person who has a lot of visceral fat is probably also the same person who has a lot of subcutaneous fat. That person just probably has a lot of excess body fat. And if the goal is to decrease the visceral fat, then you're you're ending up at the same goal of like, hey, I need to establish a, a, a calorie deficit that I can adhere to with with whatever exercise regimen um, and obviously all the things that go along with that. I just think at the end of the day, the answer to this question probably leaves you in the same path as everybody else who's trying to lose some fat. Cool. Next question is from Levy, 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 Le, 82. If I'm tracking protein, do I count the trace protein from incomplete sources like veggies, rice, pasta, and I'm gonna add collagen on this um, just to throw, you know, just for everyone to understand that like when we're talking about incomplete protein sources, collagen is another one that's, that should be on this list. Uh, and what we mean by incomplete protein, uh, incomplete protein is that it lacks some of the uh, essential amino acids uh, that we want when we're talking about maximizing muscle growth, specifically the branch chain amino acids, so specifically beyond that, leucine, and so we have complete protein sources that have all those non-essential amino acids, and uh, we have them via mostly animal proteins. Soy protein is also a complete protein, and there are some vegan sources as well. But for now, the when people give protein recommendations, you know, if you if you tried to dive in a little bit deeper, what you would find out is that let's say we talk about hey, you want at least 0.8 grams per pound of protein to maximize muscle growth, right? It's a pretty really broad general statement. But what if point all 0.8 of those are from collagen? versus all 0.8 of those are from whey protein. Is there gonna be a meaningful difference? Yes, there is. The whey protein is a better, more complete protein source for muscle growth, for sure. And so you're left with this idea of like, well, should I even count these trace proteins from incomplete sources like veggies, rice, pasta? The answer is, you. Sh in my opinion, by the way, you could not count them, be fine, but then I think 0.8 would probably be high because when you add up the, the complete proteins and the incomplete proteins, you probably add a, a higher number, so you wouldn't need to hit that that much per se. Uh, what I would say is I would count them mostly because I think to not count them um, and uh, is too much micromanagement. You, you know, let's say you're tracking in an app 
to kind of eliminate them to me would be too much micromanagement. What I would say is it shouldn't be that hard to get to 0.8 total. And we do in the research, we do see that it's mostly 0.8 total. And so the research does kind of take into account some of these incomplete priority sources into that, uh, factor that in. Um, but if you want, you can just round up and err on the higher side and say, okay, I'm going to go up to one gram per pound because I, you know, I eat a lot. Let's say I get a lot of my protein from breads and pastas and collagen and I wouldn't want you to do that. But um, this becomes a non-issue if you're over 0.8 grams per pound and most of the protein that you eat is from complete sources. And that's really that overwhelming feeling that I've been trying to say here is like, if you're eating enough total protein over 0.8 grams per pound for most people and you're at least having three times a day, you're having a complete protein source, and then there are obviously some ancillary proteins that are coming from other sources, and you're getting over that 0.8 gram per, uh, per pound mark, I think you're good to go. Next question is from Diplo Human. She asks, I think it's a she, sorry. Uh, I think you, I think she is a she. Uh, what is a good elbow or arm path for dumbbell rows? So I'm assuming you mean a single arm dumbbell row, like with your knee propped up on the bench. And the reason I, I like this question is because it depends. It depends what muscles you're tying, trying to target. And so we have, I'm sure a lot of people have been giving the cue, hey, you know, drive your elbow back on a diagonal towards your hip, you know, try and put the dumbbell in your pocket. Well, what I'll say is the more back that you're pulling towards your hip, the more lats you're going to engage. And as that elbow gets driven up towards the sky, if that elbow, if you get into enough shoulder extension where that elbow passes by your body, you're going to pass off some of that tension from the lat onto your upper back muscles, probably the rear delts, depending on what your arm path looks like, um, rear delts and, and some of those uh, rhomboid muscles as well. And so it depends. If you're trying to target the lats, you are going to pull back towards your hip on a greater angle. If your goal is to work the upper back and the rear delts, you're probably going to think, yeah, I, I still think pulling back on a slight angle is going to be good uh, just just because of what happens at the humerus, if you keep at the shoulder, sorry, at the shoulder joint, if you keep that dumbbell too close to your shoulder as you raise it, uh, instead of pulling a little bit back towards the hip. So I think in general, a good elbow arm pass is thinking about pulling back towards the hip. Now, the more you do that, and the less you let your elbow pass by your body, the more lats you're going to get, the less you do that, and the more you pull your elbow into, uh, you know, you pull your arm into extension past your body, the more you'll be working those upper back rear delt muscles. Alrighty, Taylor Hester Fitness asks, what is the best continuing education for PTs? Um, okay, well, I'll, I'll just, honestly, I'm biased. I have two that I'm so proud of that I really, not even I'm proud of, I just really enjoyed. One of them was MNU, which is Mac Nutrition University, which is Martin McDonald's course. It is a year-long course. It is very in-depth, um, and it is everything that you're looking for from a nutrition standpoint. What I will also say is that it also taught me to uh, be a little bit of a better critical thinker, which I highly value. It also taught me to read and understand research much better, how to search for research much better. And so I'm very grateful for that. And it, it laid the groundwork for a lot of good critical thinking going forward. So I can't recommend it enough. And then for, from an exercise standpoint, N1 is, uh, so I'm an N1, certi uh, N1, N1 certified online coach. And so they have three courses. One is on biomechanics, one's on programming, one is on biofeedback, um, like sleep and digestion and stuff like that. And I recommend to all PTs who are interested in upping their game from a uh, biomechanics standpoint, from an exercise selection standpoint, from a programming standpoint, to jump in there, start with the biomechanics course. It is a wonderful, wonderful course. Coach Katzen and, and his crew, Cody, Mark, all those guys, really, really smart. Definitely recommend it a ton. Um, I guess while we're here, I want to get something, you know, I, I had an, an incident the other day where somebody accused me of copying somebody else's content. Um, it wasn't a pleasant experience. It was somebody who was, this person was quite angry. Um, their claims were 
obviously false. I'm not copying anybody's content, but let me just be totally upfront with, with people here. If you're, um, if you're talking about things that are just facts and you're relaying information of how to do an exercise or something like that, like I've learned everything that I've learned from a biomechanics standpoint in the last year from N1. And I will say that to everybody who asks me. And so, by the way, it wasn't the N1 people who said I was copying content. They're, they're, it was not them. It was somebody else who was not affiliated with them. In any case, like the people that you're looking at who, who, who posts a lot of this uh, biomechanics stuff, these form videos, these how to do this, how to do that, like they didn't make up those things. They didn't make up, uh, you know, not retracting the scapula. They didn't make, or not keeping it in retraction. They didn't make up, you know, the scapular plane, any of these other things. They didn't make any of that stuff up. They learned it somewhere and they're regurgitating it. So I'm doing that as well. I, I learned and now I know and now I teach. And so whatever, just a quick getting that off my chest. Um, cool. Next question, last question is from Lauren Dark and she asks, how to fix a butt wink? Well, a butt wink, guys, is what you guys have all seen it. It's, uh, let's say you're doing a barbell back squat and you get to a certain range of motion and you see your butt sort of tuck underneath your body and uh, it's called a butt wink. Technically, it's a posterior pelvic tilt. Uh, basically, you lose the ability to maintain a neutral spine at a certain level of hip flexion um, and it happens to everybody, almost everybody. Everybody will butt wink at some point. Now, how do you fix a butt wink? Well, the first question that we need to talk about is do you need to fix your butt wink? Do you need to? Like, what do you need to get lower for some reason, for some goal? Maybe you've already achieved maximal uh, knee flexion and your goal is quads. Well, then you're done. That's great. You've already done exactly what you wanted to do. So the question of do I need to fix my butt wink is another question. You might just, honestly, one of the biggest fixes for butt winks is just not going that low. You might have really long femurs uh, and, and it's bilateral squatting might not be really great for you. And you might, you know, uh, posterior pelvic tilt, even with the best form cues ever, you might still posterior tilt before you get to the depth of your favorite fitness influencer. Um, and so, okay, whatever. Let's say that's not the case. I would say though that for people need to really critically think, critically think about their squat depth and say, hey, do I need to actually get lower? What does getting lower accomplish me? Is that the goal that I have? Second, I would take a look at your stance and then some cueing. I think um, one of the one of the reasons people tend to butt wink is they tend to hinge their squat. They tend to push their hips back. People have been told sit back, sit back, sit back, and not enough sit down. And so what happens is we have a lot of people who go into this anterior pelvic tilt trying to stick their butt out as much as possible, not letting their knees drive forward, and it almost turns into this very hinge-dominant squat. Well, you know, if you try and keep that anterior pelvic tilt too deep into that squat, what's gonna happen is you're gonna lose that anterior pelvic tilt, you're gonna fall into neutral, and eventually fall into that posterior tilt. So what I would say is take a look at uh, what you are using to initiate the movement. Are you sending your hips back, or are you bending at the knees? They should happen in concert together. The second would be make sure your knees are going forward. You should be squatting down, not back. And yeah, there's some back end down and some people are gonna need a little bit of one cue over the other. But if you're just squatting back and it's looking like this big hinge, almost like squat good morning combo, it's probably because you are avoiding letting the knees drive forward because maybe subconsciously you're nervous that it's bad for your knees. What I would say is try getting a pair of heel wedges and practice letting your knees drive out over the toes. Um, do that. Try not to initiate with too much hips back. Try tucking your chin, which can help you from uh, going into too much anterior pelvic tilt on the way down. It's uh, a lot of people end up looking at the ceiling and they have this big cervical extension, which kind of lends itself to more extension down the chain all the way into that lower back. Um, and then I would look at your stance, sometimes a little bit wider, sometimes a little bit more narrow, sometimes a little bit more uh, exterior, uh, geez, exterior, external rotation of the feet, sometimes less. And so get your stance right. 
Uh, don't squat all the way back. Uh, keep the chin tucked and let the knees drive forward and get some heel wedges if you've never done that before. All right, guys, super fun Q&A. Thanks for asking a question and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.